0: Good afternoon, and welcome back to another recording episode of Coffee Shop Conversation with Bob and Frank. Before we get started today, we want to talk very briefly about a topic that came up uh last week. Bob was editing one of our recordings and he said, "Frank, are you doing it on purpose where you're Seeming to praise me, you know, with every turn. And I said, well, no, of course I wasn't intending to do that. Our our relationship outside of this podcast was never like that. And we talked about, should we leave it in? Should we edit it out? And where we are now is we we talked offline and the thought had been growing in me for the last couple of days of why would I even do that? Because that's not how our relationship has ever been we can respect one another but we're not really like what the modern you know young kids would call fanboys that's not how we do things well what came up in the in the in the in the call earlier about this 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 idea was that these talks that we have on this podcast are very very helpful to me and i enjoy them thoroughly i really do and this is the tool we're making the tool that i wished that i had always had When I was a new Christian, and I'm glad we have it today. These conversations are wonderful. And I am grateful to Bob the way he brings that level of uncomplicated truth. In other words, he's, you know, he doesn't doesn't sacrifice any of the true things to make the, the truth more accessible to somebody who doesn't have that level of education. So while I am grateful, my real gratitude is to, the, is to the living God for even allowing me to be part of these conversations. And I think that's where my gratitude is more rightly focused. So while I enjoy Bob immensely, he's, a, he's been a great friend for a lot of years, my real gratitude for how this podcast is developing is to God. So So going forward, I will temper that a little bit. And, and maybe plug it, make the thanks a little bit more accurate, which would be thank you, Heavenly Father, for, for what you're doing here. Bob, does that kind of like get to where we were talking about? Because it does to me. It feels like we nailed it.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's better. I mean, you know, I, I'm just a beginning theologian in a lot of ways, and uh, but I've had a lot of years trying to explain things and putting cookies on the lower shelf and, I'd rather be recognized for that than to be great. I think that's Um, fair. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, Joanne and I, my wife, you know, we talked about some of the things we're going to talk about. And and, uh, she keeps telling me, put the cookies on the lower shelf. (laughs) So that's what I'm trying to do.
0: It's it's not easy to do it, even if you have a mind to. So while I respect the effort, and I do, I, I respect the effort immensely. And you've always been able to do this. It really is for me, it's thank God I'm even part of a conversation like this, because these conversations they're not they're not common. In my experience, they're simply not common. so i'm I'm glad to be here and And with that, let's move into our intro, and our intro today is going to be a little bit different. we're We're moving away from the idea of a pre-planned uh, pre-recorded intro that introduces the whole idea of coffee shop conversation and instead introduces the topic of the day. And this one is going to be a little bit difficult because it grows out of, uh, it continues growing out of the study on on the Apostles' Creed. And the last time we recorded, uh, what Bob talked about was take uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John and use that to begin proving, use that as the source text for proving out the, the claims or the statements, the propositions in the Apostles' Creed. We've talked since then. And it's become really clear that there are some tools that every believer needs to be aware of, and they need to know how to use in order to to correctly. Bob, you're going to have to start filling in words here in order to correctly <laughs> divide those words of truth. In other words, how how do I know that what I'm looking at is actually a proof text for that claim in the Apostles' Creed? That's what we're hoping to talk about today. We have good notes. We we actually planned through the the uh, outline a little bit. And we kind of know where we want to stop. Um, is that, did I do an okay job of kind of introducing where we're going, Bob?
1: Yeah, I, I think so, Frank. Uh, what I got thinking about uh, after our last conversation that was recorded is, you know, I want to have a very high view of scripture. And that was implied in my statement uh, you know, look at John 1 and see where it supports these statements of the Apostles' Creed. And, and in fact, I even alluded to if somebody was really, really hungry for this, do the whole gospel or any other passage of Scripture, far as that goes. But uh, a lot of times we hear in, in our churches and TV preachers and other podcast guys, they kind of gloss over the idea of that the Scripture is our primary source document, and that all else must be subordinate to that. Uh, yeah, different churches have their traditions, and, and traditions are kind of like railroad tracks to keep you from falling into the ditches. But the traditions themselves are not the litmus test of, um, uh, shall we say, accuracy or spirituality or any of these other things. They're, they're guides but they have their limits. And so I thought maybe we'd take a little bit of time and talk about, well, how, how do we view scripture and why do we uh, consider it such the, the source? And then um, what do we mean? Are, you know, some of the principal terms that you'll hear from time to time, like inspiration of scripture, what does that mean? Things like that. Is okay. that a good explanation?
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's really clear. And it, and it, it is where we're going and why we're going to go there, and and why this talk is needed. So, that introduces one last little bit of this intro, which is this. As a as an ongoing challenge, if you will, in this podcast is that is that in the in the as the conversation develops, we don't always know where it's going to go, and from time to time, the Holy Spirit opens doors, or sometimes we do it, and it doesn't feel exactly the same. But there are doors open for other topics that branch off of what we're talking about. We call them bunny trails, rabbit trails. I I, I think that's sort of the, the, you know, the term, you know, that's in vogue right now. As a way to say that this is not the main topic, it's a diversion that, you know, Lord willing, we'll come back to, but it's worth pursuing. Times past, we've explored a few of those. We've been, uh, we've put some others on hold and said, no, we, we can't really look at that yet. Um, with this topic here, we both have the sense that the potential for uh, distracting rabbit trails is great. And what we're going to have to do is make a decision when they come up uh, what to do with them. Either go and pursue them in that talk or and then remember to come back to the main topic. Or file them away for another day as like another branch on this same tree. And so if if if, if we end up in one of those, there'll be some discussion about what do we do with this. And that's what it's about is this is going to be a very rich topic in our in our hope. That, that's what we think is going to happen. And it should produce a fair number of these uh potential topics. And that's why we're going to have to stop and discuss them. Anyways, without further ado, I think we've covered all our housekeeping. Um Anything we've left out, Bob? We
1: good? I don't think so. I mean, we can spin off, but I, I guess. No, I think we're good. Um Probably the main thing I want to touch on, what do we mean when we say the scriptures are inspired? And there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, English doesn't always help us when you just casually say, oh, you know, I went to a concert last night and the music was inspiring. We use the same term, but we don't mean the same thing. You know, other people say uh, inspiration is what happens within me as I come to understand. You know, it's the cartoon with the light bulb going off over the, mm-hmm. the character's head. You know, they, that's inspiration. But when we deal with the scriptures, inspiration, uh, as I understand the word, it means inspirited. Uh, in other words, the Holy Spirit shows up and embodies the written word. With more than just the words themselves. And in that sense, uh, you'll hear other terms like, uh, verbal plenary, ver- words, plenary, completely inspired speech. Uh, you'll also hear, oh, what's the other one that's a lot of people throw around? Uh, well, I'm gonna have to cut this one out. I'm trying, reaching for the term, Frank, help me out. Cool. Um, I'm not
0: sure because so here's the thing. People have a a wide variety. And I don't think we have to cut anything out of this. This is this is clearly a a difficult topic because it's in in part, it's difficult because it's necessary. And and there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of teaching out there that I've ever encountered on this. So for somebody to actually stand up in the pulpit and give me the tools to begin to understand how to rightly divide the word of truth myself. I don't think I've had a lot of training on that. Now, maybe I have and I don't remember and I don't want to be unfair, but I don't remember a lot of it. And so I don't think that we have a a, um, a a good model to follow for this. So if we end up groping for words, I'm not sure that that's a reason to edit anything out. I don't. That's my opinion. So so this point about we're using the same word. But it has two totally different meanings depending on the realm is that a is that a function of the word? Is it that elastic? Or is it is it um does it have one definition in the realm of, of popular culture or just daily living, and then another definition in the realm
1: of theology? Well, I, I think it's a technician's definition. You know, inspired when we talk about scripture usually means it's protected from error, that it's fully accurate so far as it goes. Uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy. Uh, you and I, you know, we might talk to a neighbor and they're going to say, oh, my house is worth X dollars. And I say, yeah, yeah, you know, OK, you know, the guy down the street got X plus three, you know, and so mine's got to be worth X plus one. Well, mm-hmm. that's a different thing for Frank telling me as a master appraiser, uh that house is worth X dollars or Y dollars. Oh. There's a difference. Okay, there's a difference of opinion there. Uh, when we're talking theologically, we're talking about inspiration fully protected from error, considered, uh, all the comparables were looked at. Uh, you know, if you look at the inspiration of the, the Christian scriptures as opposed to the so-called inspiration of some of these other religious documents. It's just, it's just totally different what we mean when we say that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are inspired by God.
0: Okay. So, different. Okay. So in pop culture, in our daily living, and I think we've had this conversation before on this podcast, that theology is a little bit like appraisal, and it's a little bit like your mor- mortgage work, uh, in that certain terms require... Um, a, a level of precision, level of detail in the definition that's far beyond what the general public would ever even consider for that topic and let alone for that word. So for someone to go to see a, a musical performance and they say that was inspiring, that might just be a synonym for them saying, wow, that was like fantastic. And they, that's the best word they could think of to use it. But it might yeah. not have much more meaning than that. Because if it really had that much more meaning, wouldn't the next question to them be inspired you to do what? If if that's if we're going to apply that level of rigor to what de- to to that word use, I don't think that's an unreasonable question to ask. If somebody said that was inspiring, well, okay, inspiring in what way? So is this just a question of theology requires a more diligent definition? What is this? It's the same word.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I think the other piece of the equation, which is often overlooked, is that. The Bible, as we know it today, has approximately, depending on who wrote what, 40 human authors written in two primary languages with smattering of Arcadian and Babylonian and, you know, uh, even a little bit of Greek in terms of the sign on the cross, you know, and Latin. When we begin to talk inspired, we have to say, okay, what happened in the human author to make this piece of writing reach the standard of God-inspired or God-endorsed, God-protected from error. So we have both sides of that equation. And that's an important element, because as you look at the different writing styles uh, between, let's say, a highly educated uh, Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch, uh, and, you know, the apostle John, you have, you know, what, six or eight hundred years between the two, the, and two different languages. Right. So the style is going to be looking different. And I think we have to understand what the Holy Spirit's role in that. Uh, uh, a term that I've often used, uh, with people who want to know a little bit more, I use the word confluence. Confluence, technically, it's like we have the Ohio River that dumps into the Mississippi River. And the area of turbulence, where you've got the muddy Ohio mixing with the relatively clear Mississippi, is confluence. There's a mixing going on. And downstream, a few miles, I don't know how far it takes it to do it, you can't tell which water came from which river. And I think we have to look at the scriptures to some extent like that. That when it's all said and done and when it's passed down to us, uh, we see the personality of the human author in many cases. But we also see that uh, the values, uh, the perspectives, uh, the intelligence of God who's giving that human author something to write. That somehow God, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring and protecting its accuracy.
0: I would imagine that this idea is uh hotly debated. I would just take a shot in the dark. There's a body of I don't know what you call them, quasi Christian writings called uh that they were assembled into a book years ago called The Gnostic Gospels. Or I don't know if it was yes. one book, but okay. And that lady who did that is still alive. She uh and still promoting this. And they're held out in the non-Christian world, as authentic Christian texts that were deliberately omitted because um, they were assembled into a thing called the Other Bible—I think that's what she called it. Anyways, mm. so she um, so so the argument sort of goes like they the you know the the, the early church when they were establishing the canon, the the, the list of books that were approved deliberately left out some of these things like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and whatever other stuff was out there because they hated women. Yeah, the
1: Gospel of Mary, yeah, there's a bunch of Sure,
0: them. sure, yeah, there are actually. There's a pile. Um, and, and even in the Catholic Bible, there are... Uh, Books accepted by the Catholics that are not accepted by Protestants. The the Sirach, Maccabees 1, 2, and 3, Judith, Tobit, just off the top of my head. There might be others, but. Bellum the Dragon,
1: yeah. Passages in Daniel, sure.
0: Okay. So, so the idea of what makes a book acceptable is related to this conversation because it's, it, it, it speaks into inspiration. And how much are we persuaded that this writing is inspired? How much by man, how much by God? That confluence—it's you can't know. But that's still a, a, a debate
1: that's live, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and there are some reasonable answers to to a lot of that. And and part of the thing, her premise is these were suppressed by the. Authorities in the church, and I don't think that's really true historically uh, if you go back to you know uh about three hundred or so a d uh there's a lot of these books in fact, I'll give you another big word here, the ten dollar word pseudopigrapha oh or boy. pseudographia. You know, pseudo means pseudo
0: is sort of like a like a like a copy or a fake. It's ersatz. It's it's not. Yeah, made. it's a
1: fake. It's it's pseudo writings, and so the, there was a class of like people. Writing, right? It it's yeah like yeah they look like. yeah, just, okay okay keep going yeah yeah and, and in fact there was a class of unemployed scholars that were trying to make a living. So they would write up a story that sounded good and and you know the Christian thing was coming on real strong and uh so you know scholar a sat down and he said, "Oh, I'm going to write a book, and then I'm going to go to the local king and sell him this book as being part of the scriptures, oh my word, and he'll make us live. yeah, they did that that was uh very common in that world, so you know when when the Various churches, uh when I say churches, I don't mean denomination, Just the independent congregations scattered around North Africa, the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, there were some really bright people in those churches. Jerome, Justin Martyr, Augustine. Oh, sure. sure, yeah. Polycarp. Yeah. Polycarp wasn't a Christian, was he? Why do I know his name? I don't know. How would you know why? <laughs> We'd have to look him up. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But at any rate, a lot of these books were known and the various people and, you know, and, and the first church of Antioch got together and they compared notes with the elders at the first church of, uh, you know, Smyrna and they compared notes with, uh, you know, the one in Rome and they, comp- and they compared notes and they, and one of their criteria is, uh does this book have it, things that are contradictory to the other books that we know came down from Paul or Peter or John or Mark or Matthew or Luke you know and uh it, because a lot of this literature is, is actually New Testament stuff right, and no. so they would say now nah, this this piece here really really contradicts you know, uh, for instance, one of the charges against Maccabees and why the Protestants don't accept it is that's where you get the prayers for the dead stuff. Oh. Uh, and, you know, and so it's, it's pretty clearly outside the realm of other known pieces of, of truly inspired scripture. You know, okay. you know, the Psalm says once you're, you're down, you're, you're dead, you know, your eternal decisions are are made. You know where you're going, so there's yeah. no need for prayers of the dead. So it argues against that sort of thing. The other thing that happens is there's something, and here's another. This one's maybe only a five dollar word rather than a ten dollar yeah. one, and that's called illumination. <laughs> and, oh,
0: that's, I don't even think that's uh, five, Bob. That feels more like maybe it's in the bargain basement. You know, the buck and a quarter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. This is the headlight in the car. It illuminates so you can see clearly. And Jesus promised to us in the Gospel of John, in his Upper Room Discourse, that the Holy Spirit would come and lead us into all truth. You can pick up any piece of literature that purports to be literature. And, you know, if you read it, and then you get a bunch of guys of relatively, and gals, spiritual maturity, sit around, look at it, and they say, Gee, this just doesn't have the fingerprints of God in it. So when they began to put together the canon, that's exactly what they did. They sat around, and they maybe they had a 100 different books that were candidates. Some churches used them. Others said, well, yeah, there's some useful stuff in Maccabees historically, but no, nah, I don't think it's really the same level. And so it was a consensus decision by the leaders of multiple churches that basically determined what was in our canon. And that held true. Uh, they never really wrote it out. You know, you'll find lists in early church fathers of which books that they looked to and you can see which ones they quoted. In fact, that's one of the things. Uh, Jesus never quoted certain books. So. That was one of the arguments, well, you know, this ancient literature probably isn't scripture. And if you look at the early church fathers, who did they quote? Oh, they quoted the Gospel of John, or they quoted, you know, Ephesians, or... And, but oh, didn't,
0: but they didn't. Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they did not quote uh the Gospel of Mary or Thomas. or Gotcha, like, gotcha. Yeah. So so it it was a consent. It was not handed down from up high. It was handed down from leaders of various churches who had, at that time, studied the Scripture for years and were considered people of great spiritual insight.
0: All right. Let me stop here for just just a second, because I want to sum up a little bit of where we've been just briefly. When we started here, we, we were talking about the inspiration of Scripture. You had four points listed. Uh, one was inspiration being the breathing of God through the human author. Two was Uh that inspiration meant that the writing was protected from error. Three was saying that, uh, was, was the, the writing saying exactly what God wishes to communicate. So when they were putting together the canon, that's, that's our accepted body of, of scripture. That, that term canon is that, right? Uh So
1: canon means rule in the original idea.
0: Judges live by canons. They, they, right. to guide their conduct. It's, it's really interesting. Uh-huh. Okay. So those first three, what would you call them? Elements, tests, components, whatever. You know, the breathing of God, the being protected from error, and saying exactly what God wishes to communicate. That's where these questionable texts were considered and then failed. Is that right? Is that what happened?
1: That's basically it. But let me give you a real world example and, and i may get some flack on this one but uh i've been gradually reading through the book of enoch and the book of enoch is accepted by some of the coptic churches but most of the rest of christendom does not
0: what's a coptic and
1: church? Yeah, i know just coptic know. is the 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 well it's kind of like greek orthodox uh egyptian syrian uh they're the guys with the big black robes and and they are an early version, uh, the early church split into the Roman, the Greek Orthodox, and the Coptics. And the Coptics, boy, I'd have to be a historian to give you a complete breakdown of that. But I you look at the Holy place. Site. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're another major branch of Christendom. Hmm. Uh, the Ethiopian church is, to my knowledge, the only one that really accepts the Book of Enoch. Well, I've been reading through it. There's a number of people out there who are currently quoting from the book of Enoch. And I've read it. And there's some really interesting things about things that are not said in the Bible. But there are passages in it. When I read it, I say, hmm, that just doesn't seem to square with the rest of the scripture that I know. Hmm. And I think that's what happened to the book of Enoch. Is there some insights in there? Yep. Are there some things that yeah that's the yeah, i kind of interfaces with the uh, you know the giants in the land and uh you know the the fallen angels there's some interesting things that kind of square, but then there's some other things that uh and I would say that's you know not that I'm particularly illuminated by the Holy Spirit, but I think he he bears witness with my spirit and saying uh nah, I better be careful with this one." If I may. And that's where Maccabees and some of these other things can fit into historically. Yeah. Probably gives us some pretty good insight.
0: What do the what does the and, Jewish what do the Jewish rabbis think about uh you know those Old Testament books like the Book of Enoch because that that has to be Old Testament. Um Oh you yeah, Maccabees, Tobit and so forth. What does the what does the what does the Jewish rabbis think about that? Do they accept them as 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 scriptures for Torah?
1: I I don't believe so. I've, when I've looked at the list of the Jewish the Hebrew scriptures, I don't see those books in there. But that's not my long suit, so I would yeah, have to defer to, to to people that studied that particular subtext. The Hebrew Bible, reluctant to call it Bible, I mean they break it down into the Torah. The writings and the prophets, the, they break the the order of the books a little differently than we do. Okay.
0: There's going to come a day when when uh, I told you I've been visiting a messianic congregation here locally, and the uh-huh. guy who leads uh-huh. it is oh my word is he gifted, and doesn't know it in in teaching the Bible. Oh my word he has no idea. Anyways, so I could listen to him by the hour, um, but it may be worthwhile we invite him and see if he wants to talk with us. I I think you might. Yeah, that might
1: be really interesting. It it, it could be very interesting
0: for everybody involved. Okay, so so this idea. let's set that up. Well, we'll try. I mean, the best we can do is you know extend the offer. So so this idea of of uh, we're, we're looking at the Bible and we're saying now I'm coming to understand that oh there was actually a lot of analysis, debates, weighing, reconciling you know 1800 years ago that that is affecting us today is there anything happening and i don't want to get distracted in this but but i would imagine that a new believer today is is confronted with these arguments is there anything going on today that would that would cause the canon that we understand the 66 books that would cause that canon to be upended or changed in any way Is there any serious scholarship, archaeology, anything like that that anybody would say, yeah, get ready, it's going to
1: change? Well, I mean, the Bible has been under attack for years because if you accept the Bible as being true and you accept the message of the Bible that man is a fallen creature and needs redemption, it leads instantly to some moral accountability to God. You know, a lot of our academic types don't want to be accountable to anybody but themselves and other elite intellectuals. So, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. There's one particular that I'll, I'll just throw it out. I, you know, there's others, I'm sure. Uh What is often called the well-housing hypothesis. And this is a challenge against the Book of Moses. And it's saying uh, that, oh, no, Moses didn't write it. Well, it doesn't pretend to be 100% Moses written anyway, uh, because there's passages added to that after Moses' death. So obviously somebody had an editorial hand in it. They hang their hat on, you know, in the beginning, you know, what's the word and the word was Elohim. And then later it uses the word Yahweh. So they say, oh, well, the Bible was written, Rewritten four different times. The Elohim people, uh the Yahweh people, the priestly people, and the prophets.
0: Hmm. And
1: everyone tried to edit different things into it. And they say, see, see, the language changes a little bit. It does. Uh, no questions. There's a little bit of change of language. But it doesn't mean that the integrity of the whole does not stand. Once you understand that there's a trinity, uh, which, of course, a lot of people don't want to accept. And you understand that a lot of these ancient texts were re-edited by scholars and scribes from time to time to make them uh, understandable to the people. You know, I think you and I have talked about, we just finished, Joanne and I just finished reading uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a passage in there where it says that Ezra read the scriptures, which usually means the book of Moses, and that the Levites uh, interpreted those so that the people could understand. So I think that happened from time to time. Uh, language changes, you know, the words that were used in the original uh, may have, not been part of the vocabulary anymore so it took a priest or in our vernacular we would say a pastor teacher to explain oh yeah this this word is yahweh and what does it mean elohim is the word that describes all spiritual beings as well as god himself so you know so we do see some of that sort of thing there so i think that's the biggest challenge other challenge is, well, you can't believe the Bible because it's been translated over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Uh, You can't trust any of it just because we can't trust any of it. And then they go dig into Dead Sea Scrolls, which is pre-Christ. They find out that the book of Jeremiah is almost word for word, with the exception of a few a m. and thus. Uh, what we have today in our modern Hebrew text, and they say, "Wow, that's protection." Uh, so, you your just, history, yeah, yeah.
0: You anticipated my 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 final question on that line. So, mm. the, the new believer out there is being assailed with attacks on the Bible. What you're saying is that not only can they be those attacks be safely disregarded intellectually. But even if you wanted to accept them, there's still a concept in law called severability. So anytime you read a, a contract or a, a well-written, like a, I see it in zoning bylaws regularly, there'll be something, a clause somewhere near the beginning of a zoning bylaw, or you know, somewhere near the very end of a contract that speaks to severability. And what it says is if one part of this contract or this bylaw is found to be illegal or unconstitutional, the remainder will stand that's that's the doctrine so mm-hmm. so even if you could find something in jeremiah that said that's a typo it's fine that severability says you can set that one aside safely and accept the body mm-hmm. as, of the rest of it is accurate because it's been proved and proved again as accurate so this 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 idea of protection from error, you just answered through the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's probably the best archaeological evidence that anybody could or or has produced. Uh-huh. You've uh-huh. also spoken to the false or unaccepted uh, writings under under the tests of inspiration, the breathing of God to the human author. That shows to the believer. Believers can tell this. Um, not to distract, but... No, I'm not going to distract. So then finally... Uh, saying uh, what God wishes to communicate, again, comes clearly through to the, to the believer. And when you get enough believers together, we're mature, they begin to discern w- whether this is of God and whether this is to be trusted. And I found mm-hmm. that to be consistently true. That's the proverb, you know, uh, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. Mm-hmm. And it's if I was the one responsible for assembling the canon, I I, I can be sure I couldn't do it. I could probably get half of it, but I could very likely be fooled by lots of clever imitations. But if a hundred spread out across a wide geography, a hundred experienced, mature believers read these same documents and came to the general overwhelming conclusion that, no, that is not of God. What more proof would you need?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I, I think the other thing I would add to this, just to give some people some context. Uh you know let's see you were a history major if I remember, right? Uh does anybody question Caesar's Gallic Wars that they happened?
0: You know, I had to read those in college and they were hard to read. And I think I know where you're going with this, but continue. No, they don't.
1: <laughs> you know. And and those are like what, how like five hundred years BC? Correction. That should be fifty B C. Something so like that? Was I didn't that understand.
0: Old? Okay, so in college, they may have said how old this stuff was and how, how they didn't really have the original text. But I think that's yeah. what's implied in the educational environment is always an assumption that these texts were just sort of like received from Homer directly to, you know, this translator <laughs> in 1873 or whatever. And it, you would turn me on to Josh McDowell's book.
1: Uh, I just pulled it off the bookshelf.
0: What's it called? It's it's not more than a carpenter. What evidence.
1: Was it no, it, it's, uh, evidence that demands a verdict.
0: That was it. That- There's,
1: yeah, this is, I've got the new evidence, which is evidence one and two. It went through a couple edits and iterations when we knew him. And, uh, but Caesar's Gallic like Moore. I don't, I don't want to beg the point here, but it, it's, we, did, we have, I, I believe, Josh points out here, and this book is is not a book that you sit and read. It's strictly for reference. I read it, and, and it was uh, for
0: reference. I came away shocked. That's what I came away with. as I, And you're right, I have, a, I have a bachelor's in history. I came away shocked at, at the reliance on these texts that that the earliest copy we have might have been 500 years after the person died. That, that that shocked yeah. me. I was shocked at that. Like some of these, like the Gallic Wars. I, I you're probably going to get to that date, but it was like it was like so Caesar lives around the uh, about 40 years before Jesus oh. is born is when he's living. The earliest copy we have might be from 900 AD. It, yeah, it was, the,
1: what they call it the gap from the original to the copy we have.
0: Okay. And some of these are shocking, like like Homer's Iliad and his Odyssey. It's like they're not even close. They're just not even close. Like some of those are like a thousand years is the is the you know the gap between when they were written. Mm-hmm. You know the text we have. And and we rely on these things. Nobody doubt, Everybody knows that the Iliad is all jumbled up. Everybody knows that that, that there was a corruption, and they all know that. But that's not the case with the Gallic Wars. It's not the case with Plutarch or Cicero or any of these other guys, you know, um, uh, Lucretius, the first century Roman poet. No, they, they take those as Plato, you know, Aristotle. No, they, they receive these things as correct and they have no real foundation to accept them at
1: all. Yeah, I found the page if you want to know. Yeah, I do. I do. Homer. Uh Homer, the gap is 400 years. Herodias, if I'm pronouncing it right. The what? Herodias, H-E-R-O-D-O-R-U-S. Yep. He's 1350 years. Plato is 1300 year gap. Okay.
0: So, so, uh, so, Plato, is a
1: thousand years. Yeah. So,
0: so, Plato is the backbone of all modern philosophy, all of it, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's what Augustine was building off of, and Thomas Aquinas, right? And, yeah. and, and And all the all the all the Renaissance philosophers, the Enlightenment philosophers, everybody's responding to a document or a series of documents because the whole thing was like 400 pages. Everything that Plato would have would have done. And, and the and the best copy we have is thirteen hundred years since his death. Well, listen
1: to this. We only have seven copies of that.
0: Oh my word. So so Plato's <laughs> living when, when is Plato living? Like like fifteen hundred. Four hundred
1: BC 400 is the date that they assume it was yeah, that it was written in our earliest or most our latest copy, I should say, is about nine hundred A D that's where we get the 1300 up- year gap.
0: So the middle of the dark ages, uh, uh Aquinas showed yeah. up like 300 years after that, right? So the only ones keeping that alive were 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 catholic monks at that at that point. Yeah. That's what kept all yeah. the books, was monasteries. So
1: yeah. Well, the, you know the library in the Alexandria burned to the ground, and they lost a lot of that stuff.
0: They they absolutely did and, and then the and then the, the, the Muslims were rising at that point, putting pressure so so everything is being kept by the Catholics and had the Catholic monks not transcribed this stuff, who knows? But the point is they would have been lost. The 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 overarching point is in the in the secular world nobody nobody doubts or seriously questions any of the the writings you just talked about, nobody. Everybody agrees that Homer's Iliad was corrupted, but eh, that's life, everybody accepts it. If you read the Odyssey, if you've ever read it, it, it's as fresh, it just crackles, it's so so strong, right? And it's clearly not corrupted. But nobody doubts that stuff at all. The Gallic Wars was the same. Nobody doubts that stuff. If the same standard were applied to the Bible, everybody would have to accept the Bible and they don't. Okay, I don't want to belabor that oh, the, point, but, it, but it's
1: really worth. That's a perfect reading. segue because we, let me let me put a contrast on this. The New Testament basically is written A.D. fifty to A.D. one hundred, assuming that the Apostle John was the last one who wrote Revelation in the nineties someplace. Listen to this: most of it written within fifty years of the. We have fragments that date within fifty years of the date of writing. Uh, fragments, uh, we've got, uh, 114 fragments that date within 50 years of the event. Uh, and it goes up 200 complete books, uh, that what we would call epistles within 100 years of the events. 250 copies of what contains most of the New Testament within 150 years of the event. And 325 complete New Testaments, as we know them, dating within 225 years. Uh, For a grand total of other fragments and so on, 5,366 copies of major portions of the New Testament. That's
0: incredible. That's a really rich um you know, comparing it to what's available for these other, these other writings that, of that same period. Oh, it's,
1: it's hands down. It, it, there's no questions that, that we have essentially what was written. Okay. You know, scholars have, you know, looked at different things between the various copies and, you know, you have the, the copies that are in Moscow. Moscow, believe it or not, is a big re- uh, repository of ancient uh, Christian literature. Uh, you know, we have a stockpile in Rome. We have some in Alexandria. We had some in in the Coptics in the uh, Middle Eastern area. And when you compare all those in the New Testament, if you took all the errors that are in dispute, uh, you'll end up with about a half a page of a, ands, and does, And then the last few verses of the Gospel of Mark about the handling of snakes that's in there. Other than that, there's no substantial difference in the reading. It's less than a half a page of what in the book people call errata.
0: I was just going to say that that shows up in legal depositions. After you do a deposition, they'll send you, with the depositions, they'll send you an errata sheet so that you can make corrections. So Okay, yep. so the new believer coming in, the person who's looking to study, they're wondering if there's a, an intellectual or archaeological or historical foundation to anything that they're reading. You're saying in a resounding yes. Is that right?
1: Yep. You can rely on the documents. Now, one thing we have to be very careful with is the Bible itself is inspired but not all interpretations are. So now we begin to get into, okay, how are we going to read and understand and consider the teaching, and how do we integrate those teachings uh to a body of truth? And that's where our Apostles' Creed begins to do that for us. It gives us some rails that if we stay within that, you know, the railroad tracks of the left and the right side, we're probably not going to go off too far in the being. So at that point, we begin to say, okay, what are the tools that help us read the scriptures and understand them uh, in a reasonable way? I mean, we've got to understand all literature, uh, unless some guy is really on acid or something, wants his writing to be understood by the reader. And we have to say that the human... And the divine authors of scripture wants us to understand that. And so we have to approach it, uh, with the idea that the authors communicated something that is within our reach to understand.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm gonna make a suggestion here,
1: okay? Okay.
0: So our first recording was about 44 minutes. This recording okay. will be about 6. That gets us to about 50.
1: What i would oh, okay. suggest
0: is... We've hit the end of a topic. You've taken us through the introduction. Okay? Okay. And if we start into the solution, we're going to be here another hour. And
1: I'm going to suggest <laughs> that's that true.
0: If on say Thursday evening you wanted to do this again, um yeah. we pick up the solution. And we we'll pick it
1: up right there. Yeah. So
0: that that so this is going to record but we can edit it out. But but that rabbit trail about the foundation of the modern Bible I think was needed um, to help people understand why these tools even work. In other words, they're not being asked to translate to Greek. What they're being asked to do is to do uh, modern textual criticism to understand better what's being said. But, but the documents underneath have already been proved. Let's stop here and it will pick up the solution Yep. Okay, so we're going to outro yep. this, and I think what we need to do is say we will pick this up in pieces as we move forward, but not to hurry.
1: The, the way I would, would summarize what we've done today, we've we've examined uh, what it means to be inspired uh, in the biblical sense, that there is a, a, a superintending, about borrowing a word from other areas, of the Holy Spirit on the human authors to communicate, the divine intent. And these things are within the reach of the average person that gives some thought to them. And we can talk about those tools next time. The fact that we have the Bible as it is, we can rely upon it as we really do have the original documents are so close. And
0: all I would add to it is this. The next talk is going to be, now that we've laid the foundation for what the problem is, can the lay person interpret scripture reliably? And, and to start, and to start solving that problem, we laid a foundation for the authority of scripture. Come to the end of our time together.
1: What we're really talking about here on this one is the reliability of the scriptures. And what do we mean by inspiration? The tools are next time.
0: Yeah, so we've just, t- so ding, ding, ding. Okay, new try. So we've just come to the end of our time together. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We struggled through this uh, past hour with understanding. Boy, I'm still, Bob. I'm struggling. Let's take yours and go with it. Just say something and wrap it up. Do <laughs> it,
1: it. Okay. Okay. Well, Frank, we'll pick it up here because we've talked really about the reliability of the Scripture, what we mean by inspiration. And, uh, next time, let's, uh, look at some of the tools that are available. Uh, you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to spend big bucks. Uh, but helps the average reader just understand what the scriptures say. And, uh, if we understand that, uh, then it's the next step on and we can say, okay, what's our accountability before God? And we can rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us and of course the mentors in our lives and and people who maybe a, a few steps ahead of us can help us understand also and i think that's where we're going where we we'll just cut it off for today